Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, the WhatsApp static type checker equalizer for Erlang started answering some common questions and clearing up misconceptions in a new FAQ that you can find linked in the show notes. Most of the confusion appears to be around dialyzer versus equalizer. And they just gave some clarification how dialyzer reports only cases where it can prove that your code or specs are incorrect. And as such, it misses issues. But Equalizer reports cases where it cannot prove your code is correct. As such, it can report issues in code that would run completely fine in runtime due to dynamism it can't understand. However, it gives you guarantees about removing certain classes of errors from your program. So it's helpful to understand that, you know, Dialyzer is a static code analysis tool. This is more of a compilation time tool. Then another question was, why not extend Dialyzer? Why create a new tool? And they said that the differences were so fundamental that there really wasn't a way to practically combine the two. There's more information in the FAQ. You can check that out. I just think it's a really cool thing that we're getting, this static type analyzer. The other question was, what does this mean for Elixir? And they answered that saying, this is for Erlang code only. However, Equalizer operates on the Erlang AST which the Elixir compiler is capable of producing. So it should be entirely possible to run equalizer analysis on Elixir-produced Beam files. You know, they say, hey, we're open to PRs if anyone wants to take some work in that direction. So very interesting. Could possibly end up being beneficial to Elixir as well. I was actually quite surprised by that. This is the kind of tool that I would kind of expect a language server to help, you know, facilitate. So speaking of the Erlang LS has experimental support for the equalizer. So we'll drop a couple of links to find the FAQ, find the pull request to Erlang LS, but this is all pretty cool. You know, when we started this podcast yonder ago, I distinctly remember like the tooling for Elixir was really good and was always getting better. And that Erlang just didn't seem to be there yet, you know? But I think that's really changed recently. Now there's Erlang LS. Now they're getting, you know, Equalizer here. There's more like built-in support, I think, for Rebar 3 now. Gosh, it is not the case where Erlang is old and busted and, and Elixir is new hotness, right? No, it is definitely two languages progressing forward and oftentimes together. Speaking of good tooling, Tom Davies shared an OTP advancement that makes Dialyzer significantly faster. So we've got a couple of links for more details on that, but... Here's the basics. Here's the stat that's going to stick, right? So the PR adds a dialyzer dash dash incremental mode. An incremental mode primarily differs from the previous, you know, classic way of running dialyzer in that its model is optimized around the common use case of regularly analyzing a single code base, tweaking the code, analyzing it again, and, you know, so on, without explicit reference to building and checking, uh, you know, a PLT file. So in this mode, the PLT file acts much more like a like a cache where users provide a code base and a set of files that they care about and not. Dialyzer just does the legwork in terms of, you know, deciding how to most efficiently report all the warnings given the, the results. That's exciting. And on top of that, we can't talk about this and not and not mention again that, you know, one of the, the areas of study for Elixir is types, which I have a feeling would kind of work with some of this stuff or maybe it'd be another tool in this. So lots of work happening around typiness in Erlang and Elixir. So that's very exciting. 
Also very exciting, we saw Chris McCord talking about verified routes coming to Phoenix 1.7. So what does that mean? We'll leave a link in the show notes to the tweet, but he has a screenshot of using this new P sigil. It looks like he's using VS Code. And so the P sigil is just a string. So it's like slash users. And he, instead of S, he puts a Z slash user slash info. And then you see a little squiggly line in VS Code saying, hey, there's no route for slash user Z slash assigns dot user slash info, right? And so what this looks like to us is compile time checks through a sigil to replace the route helpers. I thought that was pretty interesting. Jose also chimed in and said, route helpers have been a major pain for newcomers. They have to learn each route and how it generates a magic function that you have to invoke with magic parameters in order to get the URL you need. What if you could just write the route instead? And you know what? That kind of resonated with me. I'm not a newcomer, but I still feel like I find myself commenting out my broken code recompiling just so I can run mix phoenix.route so I can remember what the exact magically com compiled route helper name is. Like sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it's a little weird and I just like haven't taken the time or it just hasn't like fully clicked with me yet. So I feel like just writing the strings, but then also having compile time checks that you're not messing things up could be helpful. I guess the downside here is, you know, if you change your route, then you got to go change all those strings. But at least your compiler would say, hey, these seven places all need to be changed. So I don't know, pros and cons, but what I don't know. What do you guys think? I am down for it because when I write the route in the router, I write it, you know, in the style of what users would see in the in the URL but bar. So like it's one way to think about it. But yeah, I agree. The trade-off there might be annoying for refactorings, but I don't think that's a huge trade-off. I'm willing to take it. Yeah, another thing that was really cool is this in the screenshots, it was showing how it's already tied into Elixir LS so that in your editor of choice, provided that it works with Elixir LS, then you're able to get your little squiggly underlines, immediate feedback in your editor saying, hey, this is wrong. And I think that's going to be super helpful because, yeah, I totally Cade, but like what you're saying is I've struggled to find those routes, like getting in my Phoenix routes and grepping that, find some what it is I'm looking for. Yeah, I would love to have a alternate solution there. So I'm looking forward to trying this out. Next up, Hugo Barauna created a five-minute YouTube video showing how to integrate Livebook with Google BigQuery. I just thought this was really cool to let people know about, partly because what Hugo was really surprised about was how easy it was to do because of Livebook's smart cells. And it's only like a five minute long video. So you realize, now I've never played with Google BigQuery to understand like, what's the alternate case? Like, is that like a super hard thing? I think it's cool. And if you're interested in that, you can certainly check out his video. I watched the video and I was like, that's it? <laughs> <laughs> that's all you, you got to do? This is, this is really easy. I, at first I was like, why, why is this a video? <laughs> you know, that's, that's a cool part about it. It's a video that's showing off how simple it is, how easy it is. That's which is incredible. Next up, Alex Kutmos teased that he's adding Benchy support to Livebook. In his tweet, he created a simple serialization, deserialization benchmark comparing Erlang term to binary, JSON, the JSON library that we all know and love, and protobuf for testing purposes. In case you're not aware, Benchy is a library for making it really easy and nice to do micro benchmarking in Elixir. 
We'll drop a link in the show notes to the tweet if you're interested, but we really love seeing new and fun ways to use the power of Livebook and the graphing that it provides. I'm continually surprised at different things that you can put into Livebook. And, you know, Livebook, you wouldn't think, oh, this is where I'm going to do performance analysis. Yeah, profiling. <laughs> right. But it's like, that's really cool. And then he shows, yeah, with the Vega Light visualizations. And I think it's really pretty slick. In case you're wondering and you want to go deeper on Benchy as a topic, we talked about it with Tobias Pfeiffer in episode 94, and we have a link to that in the show notes. All right, last up, an interesting Erlang library launched called PGMP. Kind of sounds like the rabbit M MQ, you know, AmpQP or something like that. It, it kind of reminds me of that. This one's called PGMP. So just judging by the name, PG, you could probably guess it has something to do with Postgres, and you and you would be right. This is an interesting library that I think might have some interesting use cases maybe later on. So here's here's what it does. PGMP is a Postgres SQL client using some of the more recent features of OTP with support for simple and extended query. Here's the kicker and logical replication to ETS. That was the mind-blowing part for me. So the idea here is that it hooks into Postgres and it supports like the communication protocol and it can like intercept it and put stuff into into ETS as it's also putting stuff into like Postgres. Am I understanding this right? Anyway, this looks pretty cool. So I'm interested to see where this can go. It's an Erlang project, which means that Elixir folks can use it too, but it looks really interesting and I'm curious how that can be leveraged. I'm imagining like interesting caching layers for parts of your tables or something along those lines. And it's at the networking level, the client level. So anyway, that sounds pretty cool. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Steve Bussey. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. You know, you are the author of Real Time Phoenix, the book by PragProg, which is very cool. But you've been doing some really interesting stuff. You've been playing and talking about how you were creating, using LiveView inside of a Chrome extension to integrate with other web pages and do interesting things. So it's like Elixir is actually in the Chrome extension via LiveView. And we want to talk about how that's working, your experiences with it, what we can learn from it. Like, is this a good idea, a bad idea? Where does it make sense? I'm really excited to just talk about this because over time, Elixir seems to kind of expand and fill more and more areas that I had not previously thought about. You know, we're in, you know, nerves and we're with NX and doing machine learning and burrito with cross compiling, wrapping up things, you know, it's, it's lots of stuff. And now we're talking about Chrome extensions. So I'm really looking forward to that. But before we jump in there, I'd love to hear more about you. Like, where do you live and what are you up to? I'm uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. I've been here about seven years now, actually from the Northeast in Pennsylvania, but I, I love it down here in Atlanta. Lately, I'm, I'm coming off, uh, I'm sort of in between gigs right now. I was doing a startup thing and just came off of that. And so I'm just trying to figure things out and, you know, playing with the idea of maybe writing another book, also playing with the idea of just writing some live view and some Elixir code and just open sourcing it like application type stuff, not really libraries, but just to show other people maybe how I might do things or just to have fun and, you know, put something out there in the world. For those who aren't familiar with you and what you're doing and your path to Elixir, I'd love to just hear a little bit about 
how you came to Elixir and, and how long you've been here in this community. Yeah, so I was at Sales Law for a while, about seven years or so, and I was doing Ruby development there. It was honestly like very classic Rails app development, like, you know, all the normal things you would be doing. And as we were scaling that out, my uh, coworker there, Ben Olive, who is fantastic developer, and he's really curious about new technologies and different things. And he was like, he just kept saying, Elixir, Elixir. He would throw it into conversations and just like bring it up everywhere. I tried a few times to get into it, and it was a little tough for me because it's just a new paradigm. And I get things like in my head really well, but the conceptual things, like if I talk about something without seeing an example of it, it can be very difficult for me. And so just learning Elixir was tough at first, but uh, having like been there and, and other coworkers and just like working through it and eventually like turning that into, all right, now I actually get Elixir. I can build stuff in it. Let's go and build like a microservice as like, you know, the first thing that we really build for the company in Elixir. And it just sort of like crept in that way. And it, it's, it's, it was, its goal was never to dethrone Ruby or anything like that. It was just like another choice in the technology stack. But it just sort of flourished from there. The teams I worked on really liked using it. Some people didn't like using it and that was totally fine. And, you know, just grew from there. And, you know, when I left sales off to, to do my own thing and, and try my hand at startup, I picked Elixir and LiveView just because I knew that it was going to give a good final product, but also is like going to be enjoyable for me, which was obviously a really important part of selecting a technology. So all I'm hearing from you two is that Elixir is like a very contagious plague that's just growing and spreading. And <laughs> I think it might be. I mean, I guess I'm I'm contributing to that. So I guess, you know, it sort of is true. I think it just gives people a different option and people might want to just share that. I don't know if there's anything about Elixir. I think it's like for any technology, that's probably true. But, you know, it seems to be a lot of people I see come into the Elixir community, I see sticking around. So, you know, that's a that's a good sign, I think, long term. But that's true. Longevity in the community is, is is it feels high, like people are in it for a long time. Well, I'd love to jump into this main topic of this Chrome extension idea. I've never created a Chrome extension before. So how are they typically done? Chrome extensions at their heart are just like JavaScript and other assets put together. The real magic is that you get a set of APIs that let you interact with either the browser or even sometimes the system at a deeper level than you would have from a web page. Because obviously, if you're doing a web page, that's that would be like a security issue if you have this high level of access. So the idea of the Chrome extension is that because users have to install that they have to actually see a prompt and sort of accept whatever permissions you might use you can get a little bit more uh access to the to the machine to the browser through a chrome extension and so typically it's just you know a javascript app you know like ones i've worked on in the past uh you just have maybe it's like a webpack or some type of bundler and you have different concepts in the extension like different types of pages and different types of scripts and you just write them like normal and put the pieces together and you get your Chrome extension at the end of the day. So it's not like fancy or anything like that. It's just another web technology in in my view. So from what I understand there, it sounds like you could potentially have access to the file system, to the browser itself. Are they able to reach out to servers and make external calls as well? Yeah, uh, you can do a lot with the Chrome extension. I don't know about the file system stuff. I think that there's there's been APIs that have come and gone over the years just as being maybe too vulnerable, but certainly there's like ways you can interact with the system. But having built Chrome extensions, I know how scary they are. So I'm very like cautious when I install a Chrome extension 
because you can do a lot of stuff with them. I mean, if you think of like an ad blocker, right? It's like, what is an ad blocker doing? It's inspecting web requests and inspecting things on a page and changing things on the page. And I mean, ad blockers aren't special. They're just Chrome extensions. They don't have special permissions, right? So it's just you can do those same types of things with a Chrome extension. So it's like with great power comes great responsibility. So they're they're definitely a little scary, but they're really powerful at creating, in my view, if you want to create a really good like workflow experience. For me, I'm, I'm a B2B SaaS type of guy. So I'm writing business applications for business users. And the workflow is a really important piece of that. And I think Chrome extensions give you a way to integrate your technology into what a user's doing in a deeper, more thoughtful way. And I think that's the really powerful thing that that I enjoy about them. I think that's a good point, just bringing up that, you know, you wouldn't be building a Chrome extension typically for a an end user just to casually install. Like this is part of perhaps a workflow optimization, a tighter integration between two services, that kind of a thing. Yeah, well, it depends. There's definitely consumer applications for Chrome extensions. I mean, I think the one that most people that aren't even in technology have probably heard of is like Honey. The idea was like find coupon codes for you and apply them to your cart automatically, right? And so that's a great consumer application of a Chrome extension. I'm not great at thinking about consumer use cases for things, honestly. I'm sure that there's lots of really cool things that you could do for consumers with a Chrome extension. But yeah, in the business world, typically you're using it to enhance an application that maybe already exists as a separate entity. Some people might ship it as a primary application if they're doing something that that warrants that. But I think usually it's used as a as a you know sidecar to their main product. You're talking about the power of these extensions. I'm reminded of having played with a number of developer extensions that are, you know, really sticking themselves in there, like they're man in the middle kind of thing where I can make a request and it can intercept it, then fiddle with the inputs and the values before it goes onto the server. So yeah, there's a lot of potential for abuse and a lot of potential for just enabling features that otherwise wouldn't be possible. And a good example of that, actually, that's like a real use case is at SalesOff, one of the big problems was uh, demo environments. So the, the classic approach to having a demo environment might be to literally have a demo environment that you set up with a script, data's in your database. It works well because you're it's just your app at that point. But the challenge with that is obviously if you have something that warrants a lot of data set up or if you are needing to always have a fresh environment, you get a very challenging problem there. And so one thing that I built at one point that was pretty simple was literally just listening for this. In this case, it was like web analytics because they wanted a way to demo the analytics piece. It would literally listen for those web requests. It wouldn't generate it there, but it actually send it. It would redirect that web request to a different server that was set up to like randomly generate analytics data that had no actual data backing it. But that's a great example of literally like man in the middle. The Chrome extension is redirecting your request. You don't know anything about it as a salesperson. You just know that the demo environment is magically always in a good state, but it's all built as this like man in the middle concept, which was which was pretty cool. If your request is going to one of these banks, send me the password <laughs> and then redirect them back to their bank. <laughs> Literally, like that's really scary, isn't it? <laughs> that's that's the type of stuff like I, I will personally install Chrome extensions from like a trusted uh, source, but like a lot of enterprises won't let people install Chrome extensions. And my, people might be like, well, that's, you know, that's not cool. It's just a Chrome extension. You know, I just want to have that. And it's like, yeah, but there are good reasons at the end of the day why, you know, Chrome extensions have a very big 
you know, set of powers that, that they come with. So what is this Chrome extension that you were building for your startup? I saw, I saw a GIF. I, I couldn't see where your mouse is going, so it's like hard to follow exactly what it's doing, but it looks like it opens up an iframe. And does, But maybe as we're going to be talking about it, we could explain kind of the basics of how it works. I'll talk about the goal of the extension that I wrote first. It was to basically provide customer success managers information about their customers in Gmail. Because a lot of, I'll call them CSMs, work in their email box. They're either like doing emails or they're doing meetings with people and like trying to get more meetings so that they can, you know, talk about how things are going and ways that they can be better. And so basically what we did there was, you know, providing contextual information about that customer in Gmail. So we had information like how much are they using your application, onboarding information, CRM information, all this different stuff that went into that customer profile and then putting that in the sidebar so that it's just right there in Gmail. You just see it and it's like, oh, this person has done these things. Maybe I need to tailor my message in a different way or I need to you know, use an email template or something like that to, to get back to them. So that's at the core of what it was. It was just an auxiliary sort of sidebar in Gmail that provided that contextual information from the Clove product. So it would read your email, find who you're emailing, and then like link it up with information you have about that person. So yes, the nice thing here in Gmail specifically, this is not the case in most websites that you might integrate with. There's a really great framework. I think it's by Streak. I think it's called Inbox SDK. Basically, you initialize it. You, you'd have to subscribe for a token. It's free. Maybe that's for tracking or something. I don't know. But you initialize that. And then they'll basically give you a set of APIs that interact with Gmail. So you can say, say things like, you know, when a new compose window is opened, call this function. When a recipient view is opened, call this function. And so you can build that up to build your experience without having to actually scrape the DOM or do anything like that. In particular for Gmail, the reason this came about is because they change, they have a programmatically generated DOM, like the, the classes and all that stuff are programmatic. And they're generally stable, I believe, but they can just change and you have to then hunt it down. So Streak will basically, since their product is built in Gmail, they are doing that. And so they will republish their library with those bindings updated and you don't have to worry about it. It just sort of magically happens. For Gmail, that's pretty cool. For other things, like if you're going to a CRM, yeah, you do a lot of DOM scraping and you know you have to get very comfortable with other applications, UIs and, and the way they're, they're built. What I think is just interesting is thinking about the, your use case and helping people to maybe imagine other possibilities for applying something like this. It sounds like, you know, you're saying, hey, we want to integrate this other service that we're building with what you're already using, which is Gmail. You know, it could be like corporate Gmail accounts where otherwise I might, you know, you, you have things like uh, Zendesk or Help Scout where they're having to do all of the email in this other tool that has that integration and, and that other knowledge. So it's like if I want to build this support thing, then I have to also build email. Right. So you're saying, let, let's sidestep that and not have to manage all of the email ability. Let them use the email from something else and we'll just integrate and cross that bridge. Yes. And in particular, why we were why we were exploring this Chrome extension at all was really to be able to create an email authorship 
flow really seamlessly that just hooked into their Gmail. And the reason for this is you should not send a customer emails from like SendGrid or something like that. If you're going to send a customer an email, it should be from your personal email account. Otherwise, it's very clear. Like, even if you did it with intent and you actually wrote an email and you did all the stuff and it wasn't it wasn't spam or anything like that, it's going to look bad to the customer because they can see that. And so I was like, yeah, we want to send through Gmail. And there's nowadays with Gmail, and this is a good thing, I think, but for small businesses, maybe not. If you want to send email with Gmail, you have to go through their security review process, take several months and cost probably like 50K in audits and stuff. And you cannot hook into Gmail at all, like inter actual email reading or email composing flows unless you go through that process. So this Chrome extension was a way for us to provide a flow for email authorship that didn't actually send emails through the back end. But you are correct that in other tools, if you're sending emails, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. Wow, that's intense. I didn't even realize that was a thing. It very much is, yes. It's good because obviously email is very protected in that way, but it's it's really hard to get into the space then. So now we've covered typical way Chrome extensions are built, some of the capabilities that exist and the approach that you were taking. So I'd love to talk more about the technical aspect of how you were constructing this. And because you were talking about it and saying, hey, we were doing this with Live View and you were using an iframe. So I think it'd be really fun to just get a, a mental picture of how you were actually accomplishing this and what it looked like. Yeah. And so I hate to, uh, if anyone got to this point and feels like I'm, I'm shipping Elixir and a Chrome extension, I hate to tell you that is not the case. <laughs> At the end of the day, it was just an iframe, which basically means that a, a web page was loaded inside of another web page. So that's not new technology. That might even be considered the, 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 some of the oldest technology on the web. I think they're underutilized and they work really well for this particular use case where effectively, you can load an iframe of your product into another application to their web page. And then you can use message passing like a window.post message and, and event listeners on the other side to send and receive messages both directions. So at the end of the day, what it was is the, the Chrome extension, which was very light code, was doing things like initializing the Gmail hooks and it had all the callbacks for when this happens and when that happens. And there's a lot there that goes in, a lot of nuance. But then at the end of the day, it was just loading in a sidebar that was an iframe. And what that would do is have some message listeners on both sides so that the Chrome extension could send messages to it and the iframe live view could send messages back. And effectively, what I did was in that event listener, it would just send those messages straight from the client back up to the live view server and I had some listeners there that were implemented as hooks, which is one of the newer live view features. Those listeners were available on every single extension live view that was being utilized by this particular flow. There's a lot of detail that goes into like making that all seamless, but at the end of the day, it was just an iframe and message passing. And connecting to a uh, remote live view server. Yes. Yes. So I guess it's important to be like, why would you want to do this at all? Right. Why not just ship the JS in the Chrome extension? So the reason I might want to do that is I was able to really quickly get this Chrome extension set up and I was able to use all of the things that are already written in live view. I didn't have to write an API. I was able to reuse several components and write some new ones. And I was able to use the same techniques that I'd already built an application with to build my Chrome extension. So in total, 
maybe it took a week of time to build this Chrome extension and to get it like really sort of smooth and, and seamless user experience. And if I wrote that just from scratch, probably would have taken like one to two months of time just to like build all the APIs and build, you know, just be a lot of work that goes into it that I didn't have to do. So that's why I use Live View at all. You'd mentioned in your Twitter discussion about this that it accelerated your feedback loop or your development time frame, just that it was faster iterations. And I was curious about the normal way that that would be. If, if I'm doing a JS bundle and I create a new release, is, is that automatically updated? How do people get that? As a someone who might be writing a server that has to be aware of the different versions that might be connecting to me from different browsers, what is that story like? Yeah, that's a great question. So in Chrome extensions, when you're developing it, you can reload your bundle like instantly. It's super easy. You could probably even script it, I think, although some of those APIs were removed from Chrome. But you do get a fast feedback loop. Obviously, you still have to actually like if you're doing the traditional way, there's like four steps to even get something on the screen. Like you have to build the API, you have to build all these different layers that, that, that go through it. And so adding something new can take several steps. So with Live View, unless I change the Chrome extension, it would ju- I would just be able to reload the page and it would be there because the iframe is getting the latest code. It's just running the same code that a normal Live View app would get. How do Chrome up extension updates work? Like if you change the extension bundle, does it just auto push it out to everyone or did Yeah, so Chrome extensions are updated in a sort of rolling and automated fashion. So, I don't know if there's a way to turn off auto updates of Chrome extensions. There might be some like enterprise flag that you can toggle that does that. But generally what happens is as a developer, you're ready to ship out your new update to your customers and you will submit that to Google through the Google Play Store. I think there's like an automated review process and sometimes that can get held up for up to a week or even longer I've seen. But let's say it takes like two to seven days to get that pushed. And then once it's approved it just sort of automatically starts rolling out to your customers. It'll typically be like pretty quick, like within an hour even, most people will be updated. But you're going to expect maybe over 24 hours for users to get that update. So if you are building something that's like an API, like even like a good example of this in the Live View Chrome extension I built is the post messages. That's an API between the Chrome extension and that server that's executing on those calls. And so you would have to be very careful. Maybe you would implement some type of versioning concept where you will effectively keep track of, you know, breaking changes via a version flag. Or maybe you just make a call to that, hey, we're not going to make breaking changes. We're going to do add only and not remove things. But yeah, if you do accidentally ship a breaking change, typically, like, you just have to sort of cross your fingers and hope that the Chrome extension gets pushed out quickly because it's sort of out of your hands at that point. Or you could change your server more likely to handle both the new and the old. But there's there's ways that you can break it that are sort of unrecoverable and you just have to let time pass and learn your lesson, I guess, and hope you don't do it again. That's how I do all of my database migrations anyway. Fingers (laughs) crossed. (laughs) There's no going back from this. Good luck. I only wrote the up part, not the down part. That's like the typical like client server integration through an API that's that's really difficult. You know, you can have any number of versions out there. Like if you're doing a mobile app, you can't know what version everyone is on and you can't guarantee that they're on the latest or latest minus one or hopefully latest minus 10, but they could be anywhere between latest and latest minus 100. And 
So you just have to forever be backwards compatible. And I can definitely see how if you kept your extension really light and then you just did everything through that iframed live view, you're just avoiding so much of that complexity. And you just, hopefully your extension code is just really, really basic. You just never need to change it. And you can just do all of your feature work through live view refresh. You've got new code. Don't have to worry about breaking changes. That's exactly it. And that's a great way to develop Chrome extensions. So keeping it light, as, as light as you can, and, and offloading to the server as much as you can. I regularly develop APIs. And like it's a typical story that the API like will never deprecate. <laughs> it's just you always have to support it. But this Chrome extension thing, like, no, man, like Chrome is going to like roll that stuff out. Like you, you can, you can deprecate stuff real quickly, but yeah, I see what you're saying though. Yeah. It just real quickly is like seven days though. And then you've moved on after that. And <laughs> that's like way better than like two years ago, you know, and true <laughs> on the surface, that's true. At sales off. One of the things I also managed was the Chrome extension there and it had a fairly large user base. And there would be times that someone might be 10 versions back and we don't know why. Like <laughs> their Chrome just decided that they don't, that it doesn't want to update it or maybe they had some policy in place that prevented it. So it is true that on the surface, like let's say 99.99% of clients are going to get updated within a day. But there are definitely times where it would be like, huh, this client is six months old and we don't really know why, and the customer doesn't know why. They don't see anything. They didn't do anything. It just is old, and stuff like that would break, and it would be really weird. Uninstall it and reinstall it, and it's still six months old. Dang it. <laughs> Luckily, the uh, when, when you uninstall and reinstall, you only ever get the latest version. So I will say that's a good thing. Chrome does not even show you the old versions of a package. You have to actually maybe hope it was indexed by some crawler and you can go download it on a third-party site, but you know they don't ship old versions. For better or for worse. So we were describing that this is an iframe, and some people's reaction to hearing that might be like, ooh, yuck, iframe. So what was the user experience like? Would the user feel any different? I said earlier that iframes, I think, are underutilized. I think they can be really good, but you do have to put a lot of care into that user experience, and it has to be the right user experience. So in this case, it was a sidebar which basically means that there's no overlapping content or anything like that. So it could basically have its own little space on the page and it just feels natural there. And that's actually one of the constructs that Inbox SDK gives you. It's actually a sidebar view and you can just hook in an element there. I think if you're careful with an iframe, you can develop a really good user experience. So it's just about making sure that you're sending the right messages at the right time so that, you know, in this case it would be like you go to an email and the sidebar just, you know, magically updates to the right user that's based on that email. And and it just it just feels so seamless and it flows so well. Or, or you click a button in the sidebar and it just instantly pops open the compose window with an email template filled out for you. You you can build really seamless experiences. You just have to put a little bit of a care into that to make sure that things aren't wonky, if you will, for better or worse. Because that, that can definitely happen with iframes, especially if you're trying to build something that's really integrated, like you want to put a component into the page or you want, and not just in like a sidebar. You want to have like five different components on the page that are all working in unison with each other. That would be, you know, doable with iframes, but very difficult. So there's definitely use cases where it may not lend itself really well and the more traditional you know, maybe you ship a React application that loads into Gmail. That path might be better for some use cases, but I personally felt that the experience was really good 
in that live view Chrome extension. And my past life was building the React-based Chrome extension, which had, a, in my opinion, a really good user experience. So I, I definitely felt a similar experience there. So I remember at a previous company doing some iframing of live view, and I seem to remember having to like loosen security or I had to, it doesn't just come out of the box working iframed, right? Did you have to make some changes? Yes, I did make a few changes. The one that I was most uncomfortable with was the idea of cookies are same site lacks. Yeah. So basically that's actually what the default cookie behavior was until like two years ago or whatever, when they started shipping out the uh, same site strict policy. I looked into it and researched this. I do believe it's safe to do. I guess if you don't have like post message APIs or something like that. So if you're doing like cross site forgery protection, which I am doing and, and comes out of the box with live view because you have to have that session token set up correctly. Like there are things that can make it still just as secure, but yeah, I had to loosen the cookie policy. I could have gone a different route with authentication where I use like a token. So maybe I have an API that is cookie based, but that's the only thing that's cookie based. And with Chrome extensions, you can actually make privileged requests from the either the service worker or the background page, depending on the version of the extension that you're building against. And those privileged requests can actually make requests as if they were first party. So that's exa an example, again, of like the heightened privilege that can be a little scary. So one technique you can actually do is still leverage your cookie-based authentication to exchange for a token, and then you use that token to initialize the iframe, and then you don't need to loosen your cookie policy at all. I just didn't do that for like time reasons. Obviously, there's, that's a lot more moving parts. I initially started it that way, and I it was just a pain a little bit. So I was like, oh, let me play around with cookies and and see what works. And I, I was like, oh, all I have to do is make it same site lax and everything just works exactly as I want it to. So that was a pretty smooth experience in the end. But yeah, I had to had to fiddle with some things at first. Well, what about some other user experience stuff? Like, you know, you, you, as soon as you talk about iframes, like there's now this like tree of, you know, of nodes. And I'm thinking like, how live view works by hijacking like the back button sometimes. I mean, it doesn't hijack it. That's that's too aggressive. But is there anything that's weird about the user experience with with live view in an iframe like this? Like I'm just the first example that comes to mind is the back button. I can I, I figure that gets kind of confusing sometimes. This is not just a live view thing. In iframes, the back button gets really weird. So let's say you had an iframe on a page and you navigate inside that iframe. And it's just a normal web page, so it just says normal navigation, and you hit the back button. You might expect the parent page to go back a page, but what actually happens is the iframe goes back a page. And if you're like 50 pages deep, that's weird, you know, that's that's not a good user experience anymore. Yeah, you ever been on that news article where the where the ad changes and they and they push the history to the yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, that's on my block list. You had to go back through the ads to get out of here, sucker. <laughs> yeah, I got to push back 50 times like, nope, I'm out of here. I'm blocking you, never going back to the site again. <laughs> exactly that, right? And you don't want that experience for your for your customers. Like you're paying customers that, you know, maybe those ad people might not care so much about it, but I, I, you know, we certainly care about our customers in, in general, I think as, as developers. And so live view ships with all of the stuff you need in order to prevent these issues. You just have to know about the issues, which you'll find if you're just using it, like it's inevitable that you're going to run into these and then you have to fix them. And the biggest one is, I think, I think it's a uh, replace true. So in any live redirect or live patch, you can pass in replace true, and it will do the uh, 
replace history instead of pushing a new history onto the history stack. That works flawlessly. Like if you do that, you won't have back button issues. You just won't have a back button anymore. So you have to build your experience around not having a back button. So I'll share a little bit about that too. But like, that's pretty cumbersome to put replace true everywhere. And I was just trying to spike on this and see how things would go. And so one of the things I actually did was I actually built a little JavaScript that runs in the only inside of the live view extension code. So I have two different live views. I have my main app, which is just my normal live view. And then I have my extension live view. And, and the reason these are different is because I wouldn't want to serve someone in a full browser, the extension page. It, it would look awful and wouldn't make sense. Also, I don't want to serve the people in the extension page, the full app. So in my extension JavaScript code, I literally write some code that listens for click and looks for a link click that follows sort of the, the live view pattern. And it would actually do two things. The first thing solving the back button problem is it would set the Phoenix link state data attribute on the link to replace. And live view would now operate as a replacement instead of uh, pushing onto the stack. So, you know, I'm outside of live view supported JavaScript code now. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, it's one of those things where it's like, if you're pushing the boundaries, I think it's okay to do that. Some people are like, you know, if I was writing a library, I might say, please don't do that. Because what's <laughs> going to happen is someone's going to do that. Someone else is going to inherit that code or six months into the future self is going to inherit that code. And they're going to say, live view is broken. It's doing this thing. It's like, no, you, you voided the warranty by opening it up and, <laughs> and changing things around. And I think that's okay to do, but you just have to recognize that you voided the warranty at that point. My first gut was to, to override, like not import the default push patch or push redirect or whatever those are, and then to write my own function that does the same thing, but just adds that attribute to all of them on the server side. I thought about doing it server side, and the challenge I ran into was I wanted to reuse components that were used in both the extension and the main. So I started that process by like passing in a flag, and I just got to the point where I was like, this is this is a lot. I could have done something really dirty, like set it in the process state or something, and then have like in that extension live view, it sets the process uh, dictionary entry. But I just didn't want to go that route because it was going to be a lot of work. And again, this was like a spike, you know, what's best versus what works. But I actually really like the end result. And effectively, yeah, it's just a it's 20 lines of JavaScript that hooks into that and overwrites it. And then the other thing it did as well was it would look for URL paths that were the full application just via regex, and it would rewrite them into the extension version of those same pages. The reason it would do this is in those components, I could just use my normal live redirect to the full application version of the page. Like let's say the user page. When I say user, so I'll say person page. It is a, a customer of yours. Like you're gonna have that page in the full view and in the sidebar view. It might be the most important page in your application. So you can listen for that pattern and actually change the link href dynamically. And from the server perspective, you can just always use the main version of it. And the reason this is cool is because if you right-click and open in a new tab, you will actually get the full version of the page instead of the extension version of the page. Whereas if you were to statically link to the extension version and you just command-click or whatever, 
you're going to end up in the extension version in a full view, which would be a little bit weird. And you could do things at that point, like detect that they're in that state and like redirect them. But for me, it was just easier to only ever have the full link and then dynamically swap out the link at the time of the click, which I recognize is like super hacky, but it actually, <laughs> it, it led to a really nice experience in the end where it's just like, no matter what I did, I was in the right state. I was in the full page where I needed to be in the full page. I was in the extension page where I needed to be in the extension page. And I didn't have to write code on my server that was aware of that. I just wrote my normal code and used my normal components. That's really interesting. I, th I think one other thing that I would add to all of this, this is just, I'll give a passing mention to this because I could spend an hour talking about this in particular, but there's actually two versions of Chrome extensions, Manifest V2 and Manifest V3. There's a lot of flux about what the future state's going to be. There's timelines. Timelines have been shifted. Timelines, timelines have been completely rewritten at times. And I think the end result is like most people have to build V3 extensions, like if you want to be future compatible. And the problem with V3 extensions is you must ship all of your executable JavaScript into the bundle. And the problem with that, and this is why the iframe and, and I think like live view actually becomes more compelling in the V3 world is if you want to ship an update to your app, you're just a classic, everything's in the bundle, JavaScript style, you will spend like days and or weeks waiting for the review to happen and to get that version ship. Maybe with V3, they'll give some preference and they'll be able to say, well, because this is more secure, we can improve our automated review times or something like that and do less manual review. But that end result is you will be waiting. And the cool thing with the, uh, if you do it with the iframe is that's still allowed. You can still do that. There's just some limitations there, but you can ship an update to your app and just instantly have it apply to all your users. And you don't have to wait. Or if worst case, it's not just an update, but it's a bug fix. It's something that was broken and you wanna give them that quick turnaround time. Rather than maybe spending a week on that turnaround time and it makes you look bad, you can just ship an update and have it out to your users in, in 20 minutes. And I think that's pretty cool. One of the things we talked about was this idea of when I install a Chrome extension, it presents me with these sets of permissions that I have to grant or just accept that, yes, this extension is requiring these permissions. Because it's doing iframes, because it's doing external connections, are there any special permissions or like security warnings or anything like that that would affect the experience for the user installing this? Yeah, I don't know with V3 exactly what the end user sees because I did like developer installations of this. I will say that the permissions that are presented to users installing extensions, it's just like a little pop-up. And I think most people probably don't even read that. You can't like, it's not like some OAuth apps where you can like select the things that you want to enable or, or not enable. It's just sort of like, here are the permissions, hit accept. And most people are- <laughs> This is happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say that there aren't many special permissions that you need for this. In my case, one of the things, I mentioned cookies and how I, how I use cookies in an iframe. And one of the things I actually did is uh, there's a special permission that lets you actually set the cookie configuration of the browser. And one of the things I did was allow third-party cookies for the domains- of the application. Because if you have a browser that disables third-party cookies, then you will not be able to use iframe cookie authentication, even with the Chrome extension. So that was something that I added that was like, because of the cookie auth, 
if I swapped it out with a token auth, it would not be a problem. So I could do that and get rid of that permission if I wanted to. And then some of the Gmail stuff has a special permission. I don't know exactly why they have it, but it's from Inbox SDK. They're like, hey, when you use this, you must put this permission in. Otherwise, it won't work. And so that's another permission that you have to have. But overall, it's pretty light on the permissions. And, and it's not like you're you're not doing like request blocking or something really crazy like that. And those are the permissions I think are uh, definitely more elevated. Yeah, just from hearing you talk about it, it seems like the iframe approach, uh, granted, you're not doing anything crazy on the extension, kind of avoids requiring lots of... I've seen some some extensions and I click install and it's like this wall of text of, of permissions that it wants. And it's like, uh, why do you, this is like a ruler. Why do you need every single permission to put a ruler on my page? And you just, (laughs) you just back out of that real quick. Yeah. Back out of that. If you see that, that's the, that's an example of those, um, extensions that, uh, should not be installed because they're probably doing, more than what they let on. And and you can always look into that, which is sort of cool about Chrome extensions. Like bundles are shipped to your machine. You can look at that bundle. You could install it and have it disabled and actually look at the code. Usually it's going to be minified, of course, but you can at least go in and say like, are they using certain things that, you know, might be bad. And, and there's probably scanners out there. I imagine that, that, that even check for these types of things, but I'd never use one. I'm just you know, maybe that exists, but it it is cool that you can always look at these Chrome extensions. And that also means that if there's a Chrome extension that you think is cool, just like a web app that you think is cool, you can go and look at all that source code and just see what they're doing. You know, if you can make out them through, through the layers of minification and obfuscation, what's going on, but that's something that you can do with Chrome extensions. They minify it. They put it all in a string. They shift every character left three times can't read anything (laughs) that is one reason that like manifest v3 that's like one of the things i think they're trying to avoid is that sort of obfuscation hijacking of an extension where uh you can't really tell what it's doing i think they're disabling the constructs that make that possible which is a good thing although there's other things about v3 i don't like but yeah hopefully you know maybe maybe that's a good thing for users where that where that becomes more secure in the future yeah their automated tests are like oh all this does is reads a string and shifts the characters left three times it's fine <laughs> there's no other code in here <laughs> yes exactly well this has been a really fun discussion because it's one of those things where like i mentioned elixir being pushed into areas where we may not have considered them before not directly running in a Chrome extension, but using a Chrome extension to interface to my Elixir Phoenix app, uh, which I think is a really neat thing. And I love some of these tips that you shared. So we're going to have a link to your Twitter thread where you did share some of these tips like using Replace True and talking a little bit about how some of this worked and cookie auth. Have you considered share, you know, putting together anything that would share a little more directly how people could learn more about how to do this for their own projects? Yeah, this is definitely something I've considered. Obviously, like on that Twitter thread, a lot of people were like, when's the blog post coming out? The challenge around it is that there's a lot of things that you have to have in the application order for it to make sense. So it's not just me putting together the code for a Chrome extension here. It's also like making sure that the auth makes sense and that this is like representative of maybe a real world project. But 
it is something that I've thought about. And I've mentioned, you know, I'm sort of exploring Elixir at the moment and like doing some stuff in, in open source and just putting some stuff out in the world. So this might be something that I end up like spending two or three days and just whipping together some example that people can use, because I think it's a really interesting topic for people to explore. Just, you know, maybe people didn't know really how easy it is to get started with Chrome extensions and how powerful they can be. So maybe, you know, by putting out a blog post or sample project, people might be enticed to check it out for themselves. And I would like that because I think that they're really fun. And uh, some of the really cool things I've built so far in my career have been powered by Chrome extensions. I guess one question I haven't really answered for myself is we're talking about Chrome extensions, but there's Safari and Edge and all these other browsers, and those are using Chromium, the rendering thing. And and is there any correlation to being able to use the same extensions across multiple browsers? Or is it if you wanted to support additional browsers, that would be a separate extension that would need to be created? That's a great point. And I would say in Firefox, Edge that's built on Chromium and Chrome, you can use basically the same extension. We had built an extension for a previous product that we were playing with. And one of the things I actually did as like a prototype was put together, you know, what would it take to run this in Firefox and Chrome at the same time? They use a little bit of a different API structure because all of the Chrome stuff is like Chrome.Runtime, Chrome.X. So Firefox uses like a web extensions name for it. And so that exists and works really well with Firefox. I think it supports a lot of the same APIs, although there are some differences, browser war type stuff. So that's a long answer to, yes, you can do it. You have to write your code a little differently. Maybe you have like an abstraction that switches between which API sets you'll use. Like you wrap the functions and detect the browser. But you can actually use the same code in Firefox. And Edge is actually fully Chrome compatible. They actually kept the Chrome naming because it's just built directly on top of it. Safari is a little bit different. They use, I I believe at least, that they use a, a different foundation for their web extensions. I could be wrong there. It's not something I've professionally targeted. Like I haven't shipped a a Safari extension before, but I do believe that they are more involved than a Chrome extension. I think you actually even have to have like a developer account and stuff with them. So Firefox and Chrome are are great there. Safari might, you know, still have some work to do if you want to ship those out. Well, thanks for all your tips, Stephen. Is there anything else you want to share before we close it out? You know, I'm very happy to share these things with you and, you know, engage in conversation around it. I would say um, if I do put anything together, it'll show up on the Twitter. I'll put it there and on my personal blog, stephenbussy.com. But in the meantime, you know, just follow if you want and maybe something interesting will come out. But uh, no promises. I have not committed to that yet. <laughs> well, Stephen, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and walk us through how we can do this most importantly, I think what gelled for me is where this makes sense. What kinds of problems I might want to reach for this to help me solve different business goals or reach different targets. So I think that's really cool. I really appreciate your time and that you've been sharing this just in public on Twitter. It's like, hey, check out this cool stuff you can do. So we'll definitely have links to where people can follow you online in the show notes. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.